Just a heads up before we get going on this episode, this episode contains a discussion on sex abuse, particularly clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church, so please take care while listening to this episode. This is the Feminine Genius Podcast, a podcast that celebrates all women of God and their unique genius. I'm your host, Rachel Wong. When Carna Lozoya started her job as the Executive Director of Strategic Communications at Catholic University of America, she had no idea that one of her first projects would be dealing with the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. It became apparent to Carna and her colleagues that something had to be done to address the issue. From there, she helped to facilitate the Catholic Project and is the host of the podcast Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. Through hosting this podcast, Karna not only learned about the facts of the crisis, but also the pivotal role that the lady have in addressing this issue. In this episode, Karna and I talk about how she got to Catholic University of America, what she learned from hosting crisis, and the powerful role that the lady have in guiding the direction of the Catholic Church. Hi, Karna. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this opportunity. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So first and foremost, before you know, we get into really anything, I wanted to congratulate you and the team at CUA for the great work that you've been doing on crisis. So congratulations again. Thank you so much. It's been just a wonderful experience to bring this podcast to so many different people, not just Catholics, but so many different people. It's a little weird to be like, I'm so glad you like my podcast on the sex abuse crisis, but it's such an important topic. And, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited. Excited is kind of, it is, it's a weird word, but I am just very happy that the church is talking about this. And that's the only way to address this issue is to talk about it. And so I'm very, very happy that this was able to be made and that this is a topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we're certainly going to jump into this podcast crisis, but maybe first for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I went to college, like a lot of kids, not really knowing what I was going to do in life. And I picked a major because I had to, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And I kind of fell into, I was on the newspaper in college, but I never saw myself as a journalist. And I really fell into Catholic journalism just through friends. Mm -hmm. Somebody approached me and said, you're a writer, right? You you know how to write? And I'm like, yeah, I know how to write. So <laughs> they said, would you like a job with Zenit News Service, just like translating? Because I, I also knew Spanish. So I started just working as a part-time translator. Interestingly enough, as I was going to get my teaching certificate to be a Spanish teacher, which is interesting. So as I'm working my way through college, or it, a grad, it was a certificate, it was a post, I had already graduated from college, and I was just went back to get my certificate so I could teach Spanish. 
you know, I was working my way through that by working as a part-time translator at Zenit. And Mm -hmm. that ended up turning into a full-time job. They ended up having me start writing and reporting. And then I became the editor and I did that for eight years. So I just kind of fell into it and never really had an idea that I would ever work in the Catholic Church at all, and even less in Catholic journalism. So that was just kind of an interesting way that that happened. And I worked for Zenit for eight years. And towards the end of that, I started kind of looking around. I wanted to see what else. When you work at Zenit, you worked at home. And I really was kind of tired of the working from home thing that everybody's getting used to now. And So we all know there's positives, but there's also challenges. And I was looking more for an office job. And that's when a position in Denver opened up, the director of communications job there. And I applied and Archbishop Aquila hired me. And I worked with him for six years in Denver as the executive director of communications. And then that led me to Catholic U. So 2018, the position of executive director for strategic communications came open at the Catholic University of America. And and a lot of people just sent this to me and told me that I would be the perfect person for this job. And I didn't really want to move, but there were kind of a lot of other things going on in my life at the time, and it just all came together. And so that's how I made it to Catholic University. So I've worked in a lot of different areas of the church from, you know, an independent news service to a diocese. That was really uh, a key experience for me. And now at a university, which is the Bishop's University, which is an interesting place to be because you're not really working for the church, but you are. So it's kind of that mid-ground between working for the church and not working for it. So lots of different experience in there. And my entire career has been working for the church. So it's been an interesting, interesting ride, definitely. Yeah. And so beautiful too, just because I feel like you know, for yourself working in communication, and I also work in communication, obviously not in the Catholic world, but more secular. But no matter where you go, you know, they always talk about good PR, good media, and just being able to communicate what it is that your organization or the church even, what is it that you're doing and how do you communicate that well? So it's incredibly exciting. And it's so great to have folks like yourself who are just, you know, you've been in it from the very beginning. So you have that good handle of what's going on and you know the different flows and the structures and all that. So it's very important stuff. In terms of your faith journey, because obviously, like you said, you've worked in the Catholic world in different pockets of it, pretty much maybe your whole professional career. But if we were to go back even to, you know, your childhood, young adult life, has faith always been a big part of your life? Yeah, faith has always been a huge part of my life, and it's interesting because as I've done this podcast, I've kind of gone back to where did my faith journey start, and when did I start taking the church seriously? I would say it's two parts. First part, obviously, growing up, I'm a cradle Catholic. My mom took her faith very seriously. My dad was a Lutheran, Mm. so he didn't go to Mass with us. Faith wasn't a huge part of his life. Um, He ended up having a conversion towards the end of his life. He died when I was in high school. But for me personally, growing up was really that education I received from my mom. And she really imprinted on us the importance of faith. And for me, it stuck. I just really took everything to heart. And it was always such an important part of my life. And I remember reading when I was 10 years old. There was this book Tan Publishers had on the Incorruptibles, and I just Mm. devoured that book. And I was always like reading these stories of, 
these incorruptible saints, and that just really captured my imagination. And for me, the faith was just something that was always just so forefront in my mind. But in so many other aspects, I was just like a normal kid. And while my mom was, you know, faith was very important in our family life and Easter and Christmas were holy days, not just holidays. We were a go-to-mass-on-Sunday family. It's not like we were going to Mass every day or we had moments of daily prayer or things like that that you see in some families. So in a lot of other ways, I was just a normal kid and I went to public school. But I knew that for college, I wanted a Catholic university. So I went to the University of Dallas. And that was really where my when you talk about intentional discipleship, which is something we talk about a lot, where that started was really at the University of Dallas, and it was on a retreat. And I remember not having doubts about the faith, but just really struggling to have a more real relationship with our Lord, not having it just something like in my head, or, you know, it's not just these saints that are miraculously incorruptible, like not miracles, like what's the real when the rubber hits the ground, how does faith affect my life? And I was struggling with some of those issues. And it was on a retreat where I picked up some writings of John Paul II. It was his letter to the youth ahead of World Youth Day. And he had this line where he said, I've been praying for each one of you. And that really struck me in a weird way, because I really felt like John Paul II was praying for me personally. And then he had this line where he said, the world is yours. Kind of like, I'm handing this world on to you, young people, and it's up to you to carry it on. And again, I just felt like he was speaking directly to me, and I really took that on my shoulders. And from that point on, I was just like, how can I help? You know, I I was on board, I was on mission, and I was ready to serve the church. So that was just kind of a really key moment. It was my junior year in college. That's so beautiful. Like as an aside, John Paul II is a very popular man around here with this podcast. And he really does have that way of even though the writings that he had, maybe for that particular letter, it might not have been so far removed. But even for myself, like I read the letter to women, which was written in 1995. So 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago. And it just touched me in such a way, even though it was, there was that distance of time. And yet it still felt so relevant as if he wrote it that morning, just, you know, he kind of penned it and just sent it. Exactly. Just for you, like that personal love and nature that he had for every one of, you know, not only the people around him, the young people around him, but just like the entire church. So that's really special. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And then it was just such an honor to work later at the Archdiocese of Denver because Mm -hmm. his trip in 1993 for World Youth Day really touched that archdiocese in in a very deep way. It's such a John Paul II diocese. So I really enjoyed my time there, and I really felt like I was participating in John Paul II's mission a little bit. It brings a lot of light and levity into my heart, so I really appreciate you sharing that. I wanted to touch on a key date that you mentioned earlier on when you were introducing yourself. So you mentioned that you started at Catholic University of America in the strategic communications role, and this is very key, listeners, strategic communications in 2018. And I understand that obviously there were some big things that happened in the Catholic Church then. I was wondering if you could share that moment in time for the Catholic Church in America, but of course for the world in 2018 
And I think in a previous conversation we had, you would come to this position at CUA right when things were happening. It was a yeah. big moment. So I was wondering if you could share some insight into that. Yeah. So I, to take the position at Catholic University, I had to move from Denver, Colorado to Washington, D.C. And then in the middle of that, we had a family reunion in Nebraska. That's where I'm from. So I literally am packing up my house and leaving Denver on June 20th, 2018, which that morning is when the Archdiocese of New York announced that they had credible and substantiated allegations of sexual abuse by McCarrick on a minor. Mm -hmm. And that was not something I was aware of because I was moving. <laughs> so it kind of took a couple days for me to realize kind of what was going on because you know I was doing this huge move. I started my job on July 1st and just two weeks later, I think in mid-July or earlier July, is when the story of James Grine and his story of his relationship with McCarrick hit. I had only been at Catholic for a couple weeks at that point. And that's when before Grind's story hit, there were still a lot of people in the church who were adopting a wait-and-see attitude. It was too soon to really believe that McCarrick had done this, and it was just kind of a, a quick incident. You know, you don't want to discount any incident of sexual assault, but there was an attitude of let's wait and see. When the mm -hmm. Grind story hit the New York Times, that's when everybody was like, okay, this is... This is real. And when you saw that picture of McCarrick with James Grine when he was mm -hmm. only 15 years old and they both had their shirts off and they were in swim trunks and McCarrick had his arm around him, mm -hmm. it really hit people that this was real and there was something really sinister and evil going on. So one of my first jobs at Catholic University was to write that letter that rescinded his honorary degree. And mm -hmm. What a way to start a job. I still didn't even know where the cafeteria was. And, um, <laughs> you know, and and I'm fielding a lot of really angry calls of people who are just really upset about the news about McCarrick. He was someone who worked at Catholic University in the 50s. Mm -hmm. We all know if we've read the McCarrick report, they detail, you know, he was a student. He, he worked for Catholic U. He was our first director of development. He was our dean of studies. He's one of the longest-serving Board of Trustee members ever in Catholic University's history. He was our chancellor when he was the Archbishop of Washington, which is, you know, by virtue of his position, he's chancellor of our university. So he was someone the university community knew. He was someone that we had given an honorary degree to. He was someone who had a history here, and it, it hit us pretty hard. And so that was a tough moment to kind of begin a new job. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's literally like being thrown to the sharks just right away. Like, here you go. Here's something to work on. And you know that the really funny thing, though, is so I began my job. I can't remember the exact. It wasn't. It was July 6th, I think, right after the 4th of July or July 8th. Mm -hmm. And that was the day they were going to announce the nomination for the Supreme Court that ended up being Brett Kavanaugh. But we thought it was going to be Amy Coney Barrett. So I was actually preparing for my first day on the job to be fielding media calls about Amy Coney Barrett because President Garvey was her teacher at Notre Dame. And so it was interesting kind of turn of events because I was prepared to deal with this kind of good news. And then it kind of turned around and I was doing crisis, crisis communications for like the next six months. 
Right. It didn't die down for like six months. Oh, I bet. And it's funny that you, you use that term, right? Crisis. And because that really is a perfect explanation as to what it is, because I would admit by saying that when this news happened in 2018, I certainly wasn't as aware of it as maybe I should have been. But I do know that in looking back and in reflecting, I know we're going to be chatting about this podcast in just a little bit, but as I reflected on this and I heard some of the conversations that were happening, you know, I'm here in the Archdiocese of Vancouver, we've had people will talk, people will discuss. And I just remember thinking to myself that for someone like a priest or or someone like an archbishop, right? We hold them to such high esteem and regard. We trust them as shepherds of a flock, of a diocese or an archdiocese. And then when I saw that and I started to read more about these different allegations and, you know, sexual abuse and, and crisis and all that, it really, I don't know, like it left a very irreconcilable hole in my heart where I was just like, how do, how do we move forward? So that's maybe like a an open-ended question there that, you know, we'll explore throughout this conversation, Karna. But just to, to go back on this podcast, crisis. So like you said, you had been fielding this for about six months in terms of crisis communication. And now, towards the tail end of 2020, you and the folks at Catholic University, and I know we're going to be touching on the Catholic Project as well, had come together to create a podcast that really looks into not just the story of McCarrick, but just all of the other issues that had happened in 2018, but also kind of going back a ways, I believe it was 2002. So I was wondering if you could introduce Crisis a little bit and share what that podcast is all about. Yeah, so 2018 was a little bit of a different year for the Catholic Church. It was intense. For about six months, we were fielding a lot of calls of people who were just done with the church. In 2002, it was more anger at the at the abusers. In 2018, it was anger at the bishops. They really, Catholics, lay Catholics, because you had the two, kind of the one-two punch of the McCarrick revelations, and then you had the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report, which came right on the heels of McCarrick within like six weeks and this was a very detailed report that published and made public some very uh, gruesome details, graphic details about the type of abuse that took place historically. Most of them were historic cases in six dioceses in Pennsylvania. And it really kind of poured gasoline on a fire, and people were just fed up with the bishops. One of the messages we kept hearing is people asking what the church is going to do and really challenging Catholic University as the University of the Bishops, what are you going to do? We really took this kind of personally and directed at us, particularly our alumni wanted Catholic University to step up to the plate and be part of the solution. So that was how the Catholic Project came about. You know, for those of us who are kind of working on it early on, we felt a pressure to do something quickly to solve the sex abuse crisis. But the more we looked at it, the more we know that there simply aren't any quick fixes. We could have a conference and talk about it and get some headlines, but to really make a change of the type that people were expecting, it took a more long-term approach. Like, you know, this is the long game. 
this is something that's that's going to take a long time. And, you know, you could even make the argument that, you know, we're talking about the salvation history. I mean, this is, the church exists in a very long narrative arc. So it was, it seemed a little bit unrealistic to be able to change the church from one day to the next. But that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. There's always room for improvement. And so we launched the Catholic Project with this idea of creating a space where clergy and laity could come together to address some of the most difficult and pressing issues of the church. And right now it's the sex abuse crisis. And we'll probably talk about this later, but when you when you talk about feminine genius, I think one of the things that women really bring to the table is this ability to keep people in conversation. And I really see that that's part of the Catholic project, like really bringing the players to the table. And in 2018, it was really the laity losing complete trust in the bishops and just a real break. We we had a, a series of conferences that we called the Breach of Trust. You really felt on the ground that there was this break between the laity and the bishops, and the Catholic Project really wanted to see what they could do to bring those two sides back together in conversation. So the goal is always reform, but really healing. And so that was kind of how the Catholic Project started. And one of the first projects we decided to work on was a podcast, and we were thinking of doing something more along the lines of an interview, right? Just mm-hmm. start interviewing everybody we knew and start pushing out information and analysis. But then we came to this idea that, you know, a lot of people really haven't been paying attention to the sex abuse crisis and they they really only know the story of 2018. They really don't know what happened in 2002 and, and they don't know what happened before that. And right. My colleague, Stephen White, and I, we started investigating, and there was a report in 1985 that was actually reported on quite widely, but we didn't know anything about it because in 1985, I don't know if Stephen had been bored yet, but I had definitely been born by that time, but I was like 10. So there's a whole history there that we just didn't know about. And we said, well, what if we did more of a documentary? And what if we told the story of the sex abuse crisis as a way to help people? You know, you need to form an opinion about it. You need to process this. You need to figure out what your position is on it. But you can't do it if you don't have the whole picture. So we said, let's give people a whole picture. And that's what we've done, we hope, in in these 10 episodes. So that was kind of the goal. Yeah. And I love what you're saying there because I think, you know, again, when I think back to 2018 and just hearing snippets of conversation or, yeah, you'll see it on secular mainstream media that this has come up. And while the outrage and the disappointment is certainly just and, you know, I understand that, like, I am certainly confused and upset as to why something like this could happen in the Catholic Church. But certainly, like you're saying, if you don't have all of the facts, or at least like if you don't provide that information for people, then how can we really come to fully understand one another? And I'm sure that must have been something that you would come across as well, where it's like, you know, you mentioned earlier that wait and see attitude that many folks had. So I can understand that it's like if you have this kind of storm brewing, and then you delay the, whether it's like the sharing of information or facts, 
that people will become a lot more suspicious and a lot more confused as to why the church might be hanging on to something. Like, what is it that they have to hide or what is really going on behind closed doors? So, like, I'm curious to know because obviously you and your colleagues had taken the time to not only sift through historical evidence, but you had gone, you know, high and low in the Catholic Church and the Catholic world to talk to so many different people. And maybe from your perspective, from what you've learned and what you've gathered, what were some of the most striking or surprising things that you would come across? Oh, yeah, that's really good. You know, a couple people, when we approached them, and I won't say who they are, but we approached them and they were very surprised that Catholic University would reach out to them and ask them what they mm-hmm. thought of the sex abuse crisis. And that told me a couple things. One is that there are a bunch of people in this country who tried to warn the church about the sex abuse crisis and they were treated really poorly mm-hmm. and they were marginalized and ostracized. And those are the people we were reaching out to and they were very surprised to hear from us. So that's a good sign. I think it's a sign that shows that there are different people making decisions now in the church. And I think as Catholics, we're feeling more free mm-hmm. and more able to address some of these really difficult issues and have some of these difficult conversations. We had Cardinal Dolan and Cardinal Donardo on and Archbishop Gregory, Cardinal-elect Gregory, on. I was happy to report that I felt like they were very open to being on. They Mm -hmm. didn't set any conditions. They didn't tell us, don't ask these questions. They answered every question we asked them. I was a little bit nervous about asking Cardinal Dolan about McCarrick. And so I I asked him, can I ask you about McCarrick? He's like, ask me anything. So that was really good. You see a lot more openness. It surprised me actually a little, some of the questions and some of the answers that they offered. I think My favorite interview was Teresa Pitt-Green. She is a survivor, victim survivor of sexual abuse, and she is the founder with Luis Torres of Spirit Fire, which is Mm -hmm. a peer support group for victim survivors in the Catholic Church. She has a perspective and wisdom that she's fought really hard for in trying to deal with her past abuse And really a a sort of hero for me, Mm -hmm. one of the strongest people I know. She knows her weaknesses and and brilliant. I'm just fascinated. Every time I talk to her, I'm just like, gosh, very gifted in that area. She's just a person that I feel that God is, like I palpably feel God working Mm -hmm. through her. I've worked in the church my entire life, and it's sad to say I don't come across that very often. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a a beautiful thing to, I think, discover and also uncover, as you've mentioned a couple times already, like the feminine genius and how we as women, we do have a very particular role that we play in the church, and we bring about a certain character and dynamic. And of course, you know, you think about the church as a whole, and, and sometimes I think people are quick to assume that only men have that high, you know, like the big ticket role, because only a man can be the pope or a cardinal, bishop, all the way down to a priest. In light of that, I don't want to give too much away for the podcast crisis, just because I want everybody to go and listen to not only educate themselves, but really to hear like that long story, especially in light of, you know, you phrased it so beautifully, this moment in time, in light of the whole of salvation history. I think that that's so important. 
But one episode in particular that I wanted to zoom in on was you have this one episode on the role of laity. And it's something that is extremely important because there were so many, and I felt myself getting so frustrated as I was listening to the podcast. But just the fact that there were so many people who tried to bring this forward. And like you said, they were either mistreated or shut down or really pushed aside because of this, you know, wait and see attitude. Or maybe just by virtue of the fact that they were just laity. They didn't have a parish or they didn't have any formal standing. I wanted to know just for us as laity, for us as women laity, how can we be better or go about talking about the sex abuse crisis or even being more compassionate when it comes to talking to other people about it, especially to those folks who might be really angry. Like, why is this happening in the church? Like, how can we go about that? There's like so many ideas coming to my mind right now. But I think the line from that episode that really struck me was Jonathan Reyes when he was telling Laity to go do your mission. So the way I interpret that is that each one of us has a mission. We talk about this in the podcast that in a lot of the Catholic Project was very much inspired by Lumen Gentium and mm-hmm. this idea that the clergy and laity are equally responsible for the mission of the church. We have different roles. Pope Francis is obviously has a different role than I do in the church, but we're equally responsible for the mission. So it's like, go do your mission. And for me, a lot of that, the way that I interpret that is I have to have confidence that I play an important part in this mission and have confidence in my role and not think, well, you know, Father, he's the pastor of this parish, so he obviously has a more important role than I do. So I'm just going to defer to him. No, you have your role. You have your perspective. Especially as women, we have a perspective that is very much informed by our feminine natures. We are gifted with a lot more empathy and understanding. We have an ability to include people in conversations that maybe guides don't. I see this all the time in my work. I've worked with a lot of guys. The church is a very male heavy place to work. And guys tend to have very clear ideas, which is good. Not that women don't have clear ideas. I don't want to make it that way. But they tend not to listen so much to other perspectives Hmm. because they're kind of so much more focused. And it's always difficult to talk in generality. So I don't don't want to like sound like I'm criticizing. But I do feel like In my own personal experience, I am a lot more open to other people's experiences, and Mm -hmm. I am always trying to include people in conversations and make sure that everyone gets listened to. I think that's very, very much the feminine genius, and I think the church needs that. The church is so in need of other perspectives coming in and informing decision-making informing our processes of how we do things, informing how we catechize and things like that. So when they say go do your mission, they're not saying, okay, we'll take care of the church. You guys go and evangelize. When I hear that, it says, you are a woman put in this place with this perspective and you have a voice Mm -hmm. and your mission is to contribute where you're at. And part of that contributing is if you know, back to 9-11, right? If you see something, say something. And I think that's where, especially in these historical cases where you had whistleblowers that weren't listened to, 
you know, they're kind of heroes now because you're like, they did what they were supposed to do. And for me, they're role models. And we have to continue that work of if we see something, we have to say something and we have to make our voices known. Especially with this podcast, one of the ideas that keeps coming up is we have to continue talking about this. We cannot let this drop. When we see something, we have to say something. And that's the beautiful role of communications, especially our Catholic journalists right now are doing a great job in that. Catholic News Agency and Crux and The Reporter and America. And we have so many great Catholic journalists now who are reporting on these issues. And I think that's fantastic. And that's part of the role of the laity. Absolutely. I'm going to totally have to paraphrase this, but the verse from scripture that keeps coming to mind is just how, you know, when things fester in the darkness, it just becomes, you know, like unbearable and it's difficult. But then once you bring it out into the light, then that's where you can see it. There's more truth and you can actually engage with it. So like you're saying, I I want to echo my thanks to all those who are really doing the hard work and also recognizing too that it's incredibly uncomfortable to engage in. And I think as humans, we are creatures of habit. We hate having uncomfortable conversations, particularly when it challenges some level of authority or some level of understanding that we thought we might have had. But it really does take all of us, no matter where we're placed and no matter who we are, to really have those conversations and then to continue to seek after the truth. Because I believe that it really is there that if we're seeking after truth and we really have that honest heart about it, then we can seek God in the midst of even a crisis because he really has control over all of that. So, you know, I just wanted to thank you for sharing all of that and for the great work that you and your team have been doing. Maybe just as we close, I'd love to hear from your perspective over the time that you've been doing this podcast and your own work and your own life, how you've seen your personal feminine genius flourish. Yeah, I talked about keeping people in conversation. I really feel like that is such an integral part of what I do as a communicator. I feel, too, that I've become so much better, especially as I get older, at listening. Mm -hmm. And in this age of, like, everybody is broadcasting themselves and Twitter and Instagram and constantly expressing ourselves, we forget to listen. And I think women are really, really good listeners. And you learn so much. And especially in this era of, gosh, there's so much division in our church and in our world. And we're not understanding each other. We're not even trying to. We're just trying to push our own point of view. I think the feminine genius really knows how to listen. Every time Pope Francis says this, and he says it a lot, it just um, strikes me to the core. Listen to the cries of the poor. And when I hear that, I'm not just thinking of the homeless people. I'm thinking of people who are or spiritually poor, people who are victims of poor education, who get all their news through memes. <laughs> I'm listening to people who are expressing opinions that are maybe, you know, they're lonely. Maybe they're poor mm-hmm. in community. There's lots of ways to be poor And there's lots of ways to just be compassionate and empathetic to those who are struggling in life and are struggling to carry the crosses that God has given them. And I think the more we listen to it with that ear, the more we're not so quick to push back and judge, but just to understand and welcome and bring people into the church. 
I just think we are so afraid of so many things uh, and we need to lose that fear and and be courageous enough to listen and to just take people for who they are and uh, lead them to Jesus. And I think as we do that, we also are drawn closer. Thank you. That's really beautiful. And something that comes to mind is, again, like, you know, the truth will set you free. So as we continue to go on our journey and seek Christ and, and seek who he really is in our world amidst all of the craziness and the difficulty. It's my hope that each of us can really not only seek him for ourselves, but also guide other people on that journey and accompany other people. So Karna, I just wanted to thank you again for your time today, for sharing all of your insights and your wisdom, and of course, all the great work that you're doing. I was wondering if you could end off this episode by leading us in a closing prayer. Well, thank you. And I am going to take the easy way out and read a prayer (laughs) that I love from St. Augustine. One of the first things I wrote when I was at Catholic University was on the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit has been something that comes up a lot in in my work in the last two and a half years. And Leo XIII wrote the Holy Spirit prayer. He was also, we consider him the founder of Catholic University. So there's a lot of influences there. And I guess we're in the age of the Holy Spirit. That's what I've been reading. So let's close with prayer from St. Augustine to the Holy Spirit. Breathe into me, Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Move in me, Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Attract my heart, Holy Spirit, that I may love only what is holy. Strengthen me, Holy Spirit, that I may defend all that is holy. Protect me, Holy Spirit, that I may always be holy. Amen. Karna, thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks again to Karna Lazoya for joining me on the show today. As mentioned, Karna is the host of Crisis, Clergy Abuse in the Catholic Church. This podcast is an incredible resource that touches on an issue that, while difficult, is extremely important to talk about. You can listen to Crisis wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And you can learn more about Crisis and the Catholic Project by checking out their website, catholicproject.catholic.edu. I've left a link to this in the episode description below. You can stay up to date with the Feminine Genius Podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at FemGeniusPod. And you can listen to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and many other platforms. All this information can be found on our website, FeminineGeniusPodcast.com. We'll talk to you soon, and God bless always. Always.